0: The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent holding short media, nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Christina Von Dulo. Christina has had a love for aviation since she was young. When she was old enough and tall enough, she pursued her PPL during high school at the Branton Flying Club. She then attended Trent University, where she graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Geography. While attending university, Christina purchased her 1963 Cessna 150 and has enjoyed many fun trips with family and friends while building hours. Upon graduating, Christina completed an aerobatic upset training course with Patty Wagstaff, which she attributes a lot of her success to when pursuing her CPL and subsequent ratings. Christina was also a finalist for the 2019 Webster Memorial Trophy Competition, representing the central Ontario region. Christina started her career as an aerial survey pilot flying all over North America in a Cessna 172, building hours and gaining valuable PIC experience and pilot decision-making skills. She currently works as a medevac first officer on the Metroliner 2 and 3 based out of Sioux Lookout, servicing Ontario's North. She looks forward to continuing to give back to the aviation community through outreach and mentorship as she values the mentors who have helped her and continue to help her along her aviation career. I am so excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Christina.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Laura, for having me. I'm
0: excited to be recording with you. I'm so excited to have you joining me. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? So I got my start in
1: aviation from a very young age. I would say um, my dad kind of put a recording beside my bed um, and was like, you will become a pilot. You will like airplanes. And he tried that with my sister. It didn't work. But uh, here I am uh, for me. And it clearly, it clearly did work. Um, there's actually a very cute video um, from when I was a little girl and I was a little looking up at the sky and my mom is recording with the old video cameras. And she's like, Christina, what are you looking at? And I just point and say, airplane. Um, and I think that was the moment when my dad said "Us a little silent. Yes. And uh, we went from there, but it's been a really great thing that I've been able to share with him uh, through my aviation journey as well. Um, he has his private license, but um, it being quite expensive and having children and um, he didn't fly actively when i was growing up but he would take me to the air shows and we'd go to the brampton flying club and sit on the picnic tables and watch the airplanes take off and land and i just knew like that was what i wanted to do and that's what um i was kind of meant to do so Um, when I was seven years old, I had my first flight out of the Toronto Island airport. And one of my dad's friends was a flight instructor. So he sat me left seat and put a whole bunch of phone books on so I could see out. And we went for a flight and I was able to take the controls and do little turns. Um and I think that was a really moment that solidified it. So when I was 14, we went to the um a flying club and I was told that I was a little bit too short um to start my training, which hindsight is not true. You can start at any height or size. Um, But I came back two years later when I told my dad at 16, look, dad, I don't think I'm growing anymore. Like this is it. So let's go try again. And we talked to my then um, now instructor uh, who took me through my training and he was like, "Oh no, you're fine. We'll put some pillows under you. We'll fly the 152. Uh, you'll be good to go, and uh, from there, I started my training uh, during high school, and I got my private license uh, just actually after my first year of university. Um, I had to take a little; the timing was a little off. It took me about uh, two years to do my my private license, just because being in high school and being a busy kid involved in lots of sports um, took some more time. But like everybody's journey, it kind of brings you to your spot, and then. Um, Yeah, from there, I bought an airplane kind of haphazardly. Didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was kind of fooling around on Kijiji and found this little 150 and was able to then purchase that and looking at different ways to kind of find out. Like, I knew I wanted to be a commercial pilot eventually in the long run. So that was a very economical way to do it. So I did, um, and I learned a lot through the process. Um, I will say, though, you will learn that 99% of the time, people in aviation are amazing and great and want to help you. But do be aware that uh, there will be people who maybe want to sell you things that aren't what they are. So my advice, and I was lucky enough that I did get a pre-buy inspection done on my aircraft, um, but get a trusted AME who's not the person who has been Um, the one actually looking after that airplane to check out the plane beforehand um, just to make sure that the time before overhaul, the engine compressions are good. The plane actually checks out as it is being sold because it is a big purchase. And I would hate to see that anybody bought a plane that then wasn't what they were thinking it was going to be, especially for somebody who's young and never done it before. Actually, COPA has a great article on pre-buying or on what you should do before buying an airplane. Um, And I was lucky enough to, connect with um, Anderson Aviation out of Exeter and their husband and wife duo. And I really appreciated working with them and actually getting to be involved in my annual process. And I'll talk about that a little bit uh, later on as well, but it's definitely a a crucial part. But yeah, that's kind of my start in aviation in a nutshell.
0: I think it's so sweet that you went to air shows uh, with your dad as a little kid. I, I know I did the same with my dad. And every now and then he'll say like, oh, you saw that plane. You saw that performance. And I have zero recollection of anything specific. I just wanted to be around the planes. Um, as well, I know our uh, our editor of the show, Cameron, is a maintenance engineer. And if I was ever going to purchase an aircraft, you'd be the first person I would go speak to.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's really important that the The pre-buy is done, and that you know what you're putting your money into, and also the what's what's an important item, and what's a not so important item that can maybe be left for later on, and whatnot.
0: Now, what were some strategies that helped you along the way throughout your flight training?
1: Yeah, so during uh, my PPL, as I said before, I was in high school, so I think uh, that kind of helped in a way. Starting young and having a fresh brain, and kind of already being in a learning mindset, um, I was kind of set up to, to learn and to absorb information. And it was something that I was very interested in. It wasn't like sitting in grade 11 math and being like, I am never going to use this information. Uh, So I was very motivated um, in the ground school classes to study and whatnot. And I think that really did help. Um, But more recently in my commercial pilots license, multi IFR training, uh, what helped me the most. And I would say, I don't know if this is a strategy or more just luck, but I did have the same instructor for all of my licenses. So actually four years later after university, I went back to my uh, instructor from my PPL days and said, Hey, would you mind taking me on as a commercial and multi, multi IFR student? And he said, Oh my gosh, yes, uh, please. You're going to be one of my students for this part of your journey as well. And that really helped because he already knew my goals. Um, back from day one. So when I was in high school saying, I want to be a commercial pilot, but I want to go to university. um, We were already training at a standard that was the commercial level. And he kind of set me up for that because he knew that this wasn't just a hobby. It was something that I felt that I would want to be a profession as well. And he also knew how I studied, how I responded to instruction. And I think that really did help me in the long run and setting a a good foundation. Um, Now I know... Pre-COVID, it was a little bit harder to keep an instructor just because instructor turnover rates were so high. At no fault of the instructor, everybody wants to progress in their career. Um, But if you do have an opportunity to find an instructor that you do connect with and that works well with you, um, both in the aircraft as well as the ground training, then that's a huge, huge um, help and something that really did help me. The other strategy that helped was honestly purchasing my own aircraft. I really struggled back in my private pilot's license days with the engines and mechanical systems. I really just kind of knew the bare bones minimum to pass that written exam, and that was it. But you asked me what a carburetor does or how it works or even like how the engine works. Um, But through owning my own aircraft and participating in my annuals, I really did um, get to learn the ins and outs and actually see the aircraft systems and see the carburetor and see it be take apart and put back together when things happen. And also um, it is on your nickel and dime to, to uh, repair things. So you really want to have a good understanding of your aircraft systems when you're talking to your um, aircraft maintenance engineer and whatnot. And I think that's something that will really carry me through throughout my whole professional career is how important knowing your aircraft systems is, uh, to a pilot, like, yes, you don't have to know how to put it together and all the nuts and bolts and whatnot, but having that, that systems knowledge really does help you. And that was probably one of the best investments I could have done. And I also, um, got exposure to a whole community of pilots, um, who were there to kind of help mentor me and share their knowledge and I learned more through talking informal conversations or hangar talks or hangar flying, as we like to call it, than I would by reading uh, a textbook. Um, Another strategy was getting a part-time job at the airport. Um, It was a great opportunity for myself, who is somebody doing it as a self-paced student. I didn't have a classroom of other like-minded individuals to kind of bounce ideas off of or kind of make those connections with within the industry even. Um, So I really had to be self-motivated. I was doing all my ground school online. And it was a great opportunity for me to connect with different members of my flying club to meet other students who are in the college program that my flying club did run, as well as um, network with different pilots who came in, people were coming to the flying club from all over and you never knew who you were talking to, getting them a coffee and whatnot. So I've made so many connections from that job. And it was one of probably the smartest choices I made was just to get a little part-time job working at the coffee shop um, and selling the, the maps and the CFSs and whatnot um, at the flying club.
0: In 2019, you competed in the Webster Memorial Trophy Competition to be Canada's top general aviation pilot. Could you tell me a bit more about the competition?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So the Webster Memorial Trophy Competition, um, I did a little bit of research on this. So it started in 1932. So it's been a huge part of Canadian aviation history and has only been interrupted three times, once during World War II, once in 1954 due to some uh, funding uh, issues, and in, unfortunately, 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So it's nine regions in Ontario. So it's broken or sorry, nine regions in Canada. Um, Three have been broken down into Ontario just due to the large uh, volume of people in Ontario and the number of flight schools. There's the Atlantic, which encompasses the Atlantic provinces. Uh, BC and Yukon are combined. Alberta and Northwest Territories are combined. Saskatchewan, Quebec um, as well. So I was the finalist in 2019 for the Central Ontario region. And pretty much what you have to do is you either submit your PPL, your CPL, your commercial pilot's license, or you can do your Web uh, Webster flight test. So you're submitting your actual flight test sheet that your examiner gives you after that, as well as you do a um, NAV Canada written examination. And so it's a combined score that will be used for a total score to become the finalist in your region. So um, you do your flight test, You submit that, you do that online, um, written examination that the Webster team puts together, I think in conjunction with Nav Canada. And then that combined score um, becomes that magical number, I guess, um, at the end. So the 2019 competition uh, that I attended was held at the Moncton Flight College, which was an absolutely amazing experience, and the Moncton Flight College was an incredible host. They treated us so well and really gave us the uh, warmest East Coast welp- welcome. Um, while we were out there, it was competing in the Webster Memorial Competition was definitely a highlight for my aviation journey so far, and it's um, something that I will never forget. Um, and I would really highly encourage anybody who does a private pilot's license, a commercial pilot's license to um, submit their their for uh, like go into the competition. It's absolutely incredible. Um, at the competition, though, you will complete a flight test, a simulator test, a written exam, which is all long answer, no transport, Canada, multiple choice exam there, as well as an interview with three judges. Um, and they ask you questions about general aviation, professional aviation um, and things like that. Uh, So although it was a really challenging experience, it is a competition. So it's nerve wracking. The flight test is nerve wracking. The simulator is nerve wracking. The written exam, you really want to do well on, but it's also, again, nerve wracking, um, as well as the interview, but it sets you up so well, I feel, for your professional journey, if that's something that you so choose. And I will make the caveat being you do not have to have hopes to be a a professional pilot to join the competition. Um, but for the most part in my year, we all had aspirations to, to go the professional route. And I think it is, um, a really great opportunity to kind of highlight yourself as a pilot and as somebody who wants to succeed and kind of put themselves out there, um, as well as gain experience. The interview, um, Well, it was a really great opportunity and I think will set me up good for uh, job interviews in the future as well. Um, But the greatest takeaway is definitely the connections and friendships that you develop in that week. So although we are all competing and in my competition, there was um, there was eight competitors, but we all became very close um, and we became very good friends. So we actually have a WhatsApp group and we still all talk and uh, on the WhatsApp group and tell each other about our achievements, our setbacks, or we talk about stuff in the aviation industry that's going on. But at the end of the day, we're all just friends too. And I had the pleasure of um, meeting one of the competitors. Actually, previously, I I met him before the competition when we went down to Oshkosh. We met at the, um, COPO was hosting a Webster Memorial Trophy info session at Oshkosh. Uh, So I was able to meet him prior to the competition, which was really awesome. And I actually connected with him when I was flying through Winnipeg as a survey pilot, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be in town. Would you like to, to meet up? And I met with him and his wife for dinner and it was just so lovely. So it really does kind of bring lifelong friendships as well. Um, but that's also not to say, uh, to highlight the professional connections that you can also make during the competition. And, um, you never know in aviation who you're, Who's going to be that next step or open a doorway to a, a job opportunity um, down the line? So the networking that you get to experience during the competition is is a highlight as well, for sure. I want to send a thank you as well to uh, the individuals who encouraged me to apply because I originally was not actually going to apply. And they kind of pushed me and said, Christina, no, no, put your application in um and so i did and i really do i do thank them for for pushing me to to submit so that's why i really say you never know who else is applying so just put your application in and
0: what happens happens now your first flying job was as a survey pilot could you tell me a little bit more about what that role was like for sure so
1: survey flying was my first job out of flight school and i still cannot believe the you get handed a key, set of keys, you get handed an aircraft, and they say, take it away. And you're like, oh my goodness, somebody trusts me with this airplane, and here I go. Uh, it was so incredible. So the what I did was photo survey. So there's different types of survey flying. There's geophysical uh, survey flying. There's photo survey. Um, there's uh, radar. There's a whole different uh, slew of um, a survey flying positions, but mine was specifically photo survey. So... I was flying a Cessna 172. The company also did have Cessna 206s as well. Um, but I started off on the Cessna 172 and was um, went in for my orientation. And then after your kind of training week and whatnot, then you are sent off. So I got handed the keys to a 172 and was told, start making your way down to Florida. So there I went, uh, making my way down to Florida, figuring it all out by myself. Um, and I think that, uh, it takes a definitely a a certain type of person to do survey flying. Um, different companies do different schedules and whatnot, but I can only speak for myself. It was a four month on one week off schedule. So you were gone away for four months. You did your job. You'd have one week where you come home and and do whatever you want during that week. And then you go back on the road for, uh, for four months at a time and, uh, learning. How to operate your 172 in a variety of different environments and terrain, as well as uh, navigate different airspace that you've never flown in, is a uh, a huge a huge deal when you're starting off as a young pilot, and it really heightens your pilot decision making skills, as well as um, just how you conduct yourself at FBOs and and really. It's a challenging job at the beginning, I will not lie. Um, but when you start to get into the job or you are with um, more, your senior co-workers who have been doing it for a little bit longer, you really do get into the swing of things and get to enjoy everything that job has to offer. So in terms of the actual survey flying, you're uh, working in between a sun angle. So it's your job again. Everything is on you to figure out when you need to be up in the air, taking your first photograph and when that window closes at the end of the day and your efficiency in that window as well. Um, Taking into account your fuel calculations and the weather considerations for that day as well. And then once you're going up, I can, it's kind of like driving a, a lawnmower back and forth in the sky. You just go back and forth making your lines um, and it's all through computerized equipment that we used and a, a light bar system. And it was really, really fun flying. And it took me all over um, the state. So from Brampton, Ontario, down to uh, Florida, and all the way from Nova Scotia to Kelowna, BC was uh, where I got to fly survey. So you can definitely see the, the range of terrain that I flew in. Um, some restricted airspace that you had to coordinate coordination with ATC to get uh, into that specific area that you're survey flying. And it really is a uh, on the job learning, but also um, really independent job that you have to do. And I think it's a great job for people starting out in their career because it shows your uh employers down the line, that you are a problem solver, you are able to make those pilot decision making skills on your own. Although you're flying a 172 single engine piston plane, you have a lot of work to do and and a lot of decisions to make. And you have to be reliable. Nobody's babysitting you. You have to be on time for your sun angle. You have to be in constant contact with your chief pilot, your uh, person responsible for maintenance As they're setting up the the maintenance schedules for your aircraft, you're doing all your technical journey logs. So you're really learning a lot.
0: Now, was there a particular place you flew that uh, was your favorite?
1: Oh, my favorite place to fly. That's a tough one. I probably have three. Um, because I can't make any one single decision. Um, One was doing a low and over approach at the NASA landing facility where the shuttles landed. So that was really, really cool in Florida. Um, Two was also in Florida. Um, Actually, oh, I might have four. Two is flying over Walt Disney World. That was just a hoot. And I was listening to Disney music. And it was just a very magical moment, to say the least. Um, three was seeing the snow or yeah, seeing the snowbirds fly over in Halifax when they were on their Cross Canada tour. Um, that was a really special moment, as well as four was my flight through the mountains, because there is nothing like the beauty of flying through the Rockies in a Cessna 172 by yourself for the very first time it was very, that was almost more magical. That was
0: more magical than flying over Walt Disney World. (laughs) It all sounds pretty magical. What was it like to be a transient pilot and managing your aircraft on the road?
1: Yeah, for sure. So not having a fixed base, um, you learn very quickly that the minimalist lifestyle is for you. Um, I was living out of my single backpack. Uh, It's like a kind of a uh, like hikers, big backpack. Um, and that was my whole life for four months. I had that I had my flight bag. And I had a little backpack that I would just keep like my luncheon and kind of day to day items, and whatnot. And and that was it. And you really learn that what you, you can live off very minimal items, uh, very quickly. And it was just—it was a really cool experience. You learn how to create home when you're not at home. You really get to connect with your fellow coworkers. So, although I did say that you're off on your own, sometimes you are living together with uh, coworkers. So, whether that be an Airbnb kind of pre-COVID days here um, all together, or you're in a hotel room, it uh, really gives you a chance to to connect with the people that you're with or to connect with yourself or to connect with people back home through FaceTime and and other ways, just even phone calls. So you really you learn how to be by yourself and how to have fun by yourself and also to cherish those moments when you are with a group of people or your group of other coworkers in in different areas. And also eating alone in restaurants is totally normal. And it's a great way to uh, create conversations with other travelers or people from that area who have great insight on good places to travel to and and whatnot. So I think that's, that's a really cool learning experience is just learning how to be on your own and, and figuring things out on your own. Um, In terms of your aircraft, that also becomes your home away from home. That's your office. Uh, So some, Pilots like to keep it's just like in work. Some people like a clean work environment. Other people's don't. They have papers everywhere and whatnot. I was very much I like to have my my airplane is my office. It's my space that I spend sometimes upwards of 10 hours in a day survey flying. So I had everything had a certain spot. um, And you really learn kind of how to create the most out of a little a little space. Um, And then it was really great. Um, again, the company I work for, our person responsible for maintenance, set up all of our uh, maintenance bases. So we were never coming back to Canada, back to our main home base for our maintenance. So uh, he did a great job at scheduling up our maintenance places in any kind of city or area we were in. Um, and then sometimes it would mean you'd have to ferry your airplane maybe two or three hours to get to your maintenance base in a different state or Uh, different province, but it was really kind of cool to see how all the operations come together and it, a lot of moving pieces as in everything in aviation. Um, but it's, it's definitely interesting being a transient pilot and it's something I look forward to hopefully maybe doing more of in the future.
0: Now, as someone with a background in geography, how did you find this influence the way you approached your survey role?
1: Yeah. So with my background in geography, um, I don't, I wouldn't say that it was a prerequisite for my survey flying job. So, for those of you who are listening and don't have any background in geography, that is a okay. If you can fly an airplane, you can fly survey. Um, but it did give me a, gr- a greater appreciation for the job that I was doing, uh, especially due to the fact that mine was photo survey. Uh, a lot of the um, images that we were uh, collecting were for geographical information systems purposes. And um, that was what I kind of specialized my degree in was geographical information systems. So it was kind of cool to see how the, the actual images, some of the images that I may have been using during my degree were actually collected. And it was by some person flying a little plane back and forth across and, and, getting to to capture all of that data and the images that we were taking were very very high resolution images so you can get very good detail and data for urban planning purposes for pipeline patrol um, purposes for geological survey planning and and stuff like that so um, it was it was really cool to kind of put the two worlds together But probably the the coolest thing for me is when I'm flying and what I love about flying is looking out the window and looking at the train below me and seeing the meandering rivers and the Oxbow lakes and prairie potholes over the Manitoba, Saskatchewan, kind of going into Alberta. You can see eskers and how they correlate to the quarries. And you can kind of see how the actual formations are shaping our landscape and also, flying through the Rocky Mountains versus flying through the Appalachian Mountains—it's um, just really cool for me. And I, I like the geomorphology of, of Canada specifically. So, being able to fly 172 from coast to coast and take my time uh, going to all, all these places and, and doing survey work in kind of each province along the way almost was was a really special uh, moment for me. And I took lots of photos out the windows whenever I saw a cool. Uh, like geographical formation and would send it to some of my professors from my university and they really appreciated that so it was that's that's the nice thing is kind of two worlds colliding
0: now what was it like to transition from your survey role into your current role as a medevac pilot
1: it it was a big jump so uh i'm not going to lie uh, going from Flying a Cessna 172 um, and a 150, those were pretty much the two primary aircraft that I had flown. I did have my multi-engine and my multi-IFR rating, but I think I had close to 13 hours of multi and multi-IFR combined time. Um, So it was a big jump going from that to flying the aircraft that I fly, which is a Metroliner 2. And it was overwhelming to say the least. I am very, very thankful for a mentor that I met through the company uh, who helped me kind of navigate what even my training was going to look like and, and what's important and how to what flows you have to remember. And he sat with me for hours and hours going through the emergencies, the flows, the systems and without him, I don't think I would have survived my initial training. Um, But it kind of reinforces the habits that you make when you're doing your commercial training when you're going for an initial type rating. Um, So again, going back to the hangar flying, when I was doing my multi-engine IFR training, it was sitting in the plane when it was not in operation, and running through my flows and going through everything um, just while sitting on the ground. And I correlated that exactly to what I did for my my type rating training was I sat in the plane, I contacted my chief pilot and I said, Hey, can I sit in the plane when it's not an operation and just run through checklists and run through flows? And of course not a problem. So that's what I did for hours and hours and hours. So that when it came time for my actual in-flight training, um, unfortunately there, we don't have simulators. So everything was done in the aircraft. I wasn't feeling like I was completely overwhelmed or behind the plane because all the systems knowledge and all of my flows and everything had already been memorized. So all I had to focus on was learning to fly the aircraft and to refinesse my, my IFR knowledge and and skills. So, uh, it was definitely the most challenging, the most challenged I have been in aviation was doing that initial type rating for my medevac, um, role. Um, and then in terms of the the type of job it is also very different. So survey flying, you're by yourself; you are your own commander. You are piloting your aircraft, making every decision. Going into the medevac role, I'm now operating in a two crew environment, which is something totally new to me. Having only flown with the same instructor uh, for all my training and having taken friends up and family, but this is a moment for me to to now work with another person and have somebody else. Judge my flying, or at least that's what I perceive in my brain. Um, was was a challenge, and it's amazing to see my growth as a pilot um, from that initial type rating check ride to where I am now. And it's uh, a testament to say to anybody that you will get better, and you will grow, and you will figure out, and you can do it. No matter how overwhelmed you may feel at the beginning, it does get easier. Like. Anything, when you started flying, you were like, ah, flying a plane, crazy. And then by the time you have 500 hours, you're like, "Well, oh, okay, I, I think I got this flying thing. And then you progress and you progress, but it's really a career that you're always going to be learning in and always take that opportunity to appreciate that you're always going to be learning and and to be humble throughout the process.
0: Now, could you explain to me a little bit more the day-to-day of medevac flying?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, Through listening to your other awesome guests on your podcast, I hear that we've had some other medevac pilots, but obviously I can only speak to uh, my current role and what I do in my day to day life of a medevac pilot. So, our schedule is a little bit more fluid. So, uh, you're kind of scheduled to work maybe, say, 18 to 22 shifts a month. Um, And it's not a Monday to Friday type job or it's not uh, week on, week off. It is kind of more fluid based on the operational needs of the company. Um, And then the way it works is, again, you are on call. um, So you're either kind of on a first up or a second up aircraft. Um, So that could be kind of correlated to like a day shift or a night shift. But again, with operational needs of medevac flying, uh, sometimes they're a little bit busier than others. So there may be times when you get called a little bit earlier, a little bit later than a, a normal shift would start, so to say, um, and it's uh, it's a quite a cool operation to be a part of, and it really highlights the interconnectedness of different industries. So it's not only just a pilot operation; it's a medical operation. It's working with many different parties to get the job done. And that's something that I really, really love about Medivac flying is the collaboration. So um, typically what happens is I might be sitting on call and luckily um, where I am based, I'm able to be on call just sitting at my home. And then once I get that call from dispatch, it's go time. It's getting my flight suit and I have everything laid out, ready to go. Um, I have my lunch packed or my dinner packed or my breakfast, whatever time of the day it is. Um, and I get going to the airport while this is happening. I am in the first officer position. So my primary job is to get ready for the flight um, personally and get the aircraft prepped and ready to go. So while this is happening, my uh, captain is doing the weather checks, briefings, um, filing the flight plan, getting him himself or herself ready for the flight as well. And we meet at the airport. So it's my job to do the pre-flight inspection um, to make sure that all critical surfaces are clear of ice, the aircraft's towed out, ready to go, warmed up. Um, if it is cold, to make sure that if we're loading a patient, the patient is going to be comfortable. Our medic comes to the airport and makes sure that, that all the medical equipment is on board the aircraft that needs to be there. Um, and it's go time. So Normally, this all happens within a one-hour window, so it is uh, quite a busy period. Now, weather conditions and things like that may take uh, longer in some cases. But once we all hop in the plane, we're going off to either pick up our patient or a patient arrives uh, via ambulance. So then this brings another party into the, uh, the equation as well. So we're working with the EMS personnel or uh, medical transport personnel, and they do a, a patient handover. Um, as a first officer, it's my job to help load the patient onto the aircraft along with the captain up top. And then we get them on their, on their way to wherever they're going. And um, there's either an advanced care or primary care. So um, similar to one of your other guest speakers, primary care is a little bit um, less acute, whereas the advanced care is more acute. And there's actually two paramedics on board one who's an advanced care paramedic, and one is a primary care paramedic. Um, and it's really cool to to see it all happen. And it's a very rewarding position to know that you're helping get somebody to a medical appointment or to a hospital to get the care that they need. And we are servicing a lot of the northern communities. And the only way that northern communities can get to medical care is through air transport um, in Ontario. So it's a very important job, and I take the role very seriously in what I do. So it's, uh, it's very rewarding, though, in, in all in all.
0: Now, you mentioned that in your current role, you service most of uh, Northern Ontario. And for, for your role, you had relocated from Southern Ontario to Northern Ontario. What was this transition like?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting transition um, going from Southern Ontario to Northern Ontario and also from being a a person who didn't have a home for for almost a year. Um, All in all, though, I can say it's not going to be for everybody. But if you are a person who enjoys the outdoors, enjoys the snow and the cold weather, um, whether you're into snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, hiking, canoeing, anything like that, moving up to Northern Ontario is absolutely awesome. I would take living in Northern Ontario over Southern Ontario um, any day. Um, But then again, that is my personality type and I do enjoy those types of activities. Um, But that isn't to say that it does come with its challenges as well especially, um, I can speak for myself. I moved up here during the COVID-19 pandemic and in some ways it has been beneficial because there's less people up here. Um, so, and we do have the availability of outdoor activity space and a winter wonderland of things to do. So through physical distancing, it's very easy to, to go out for walks or to go for a snowshoe or a ski and, and have that be fine. Um, so I'm feeling quite fortunate to be up, up here right now. Um, but it can be isolating as well in different ways than even survey flying was. So it's, it is a, a gentle balance. And I think whenever I do go to Winnipeg or things like that, I'm like, oh, my goodness, parking lots have so many cars and like things are there's other people. Um, so you do kind of get into, into a little northern bubble. Um, but I've been very fortunate to connect with great co-workers and colleagues and, and made new friends here um, in Northern Ontario. So I think pretty much whatever you do, try to find the, the light and, and enjoy what you're doing and make the most out of every situation.
0: I know from following you on social media, it seems that every post alternates between an outdoor activity and flying. And I you you make it look so much fun. It is a
1: lot of fun. but it's also minus 40 sometimes. So as long as you bundle up, you can still have fun.
0: (laughs) Now, how did having or not having a mentor impact your career path?
1: Yeah. So I would say that at the beginning of my aviation journey, I did not have a mentor. Uh, My dad was my biggest supporter and kind of my, my mentor in pushing me into aviation. But I didn't really have anybody in the industry who was a professional pilot. And so I was kind of navigating the whole system myself doing Google searches and trying to figure it out, especially I was in high school at the time. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, do I want to go to university first? Do I want to go right into a commercial flight training program? Or do I want to do both? And Um, I did apply to many university and college programs that combined, um, either geography or business and aviation. And unfortunately, just for me, the finances didn't, uh, line up to do one of those programs. And again, maybe having a mentor, I would have divulged into a little bit more scholarship opportunities and whatnot, but again, um, everybody's path is different. Um, so I kind of carved my own path and I would not regret it in the slightest, But I do, as I went through aviation, I did gain mentors, whether that be through the formal mentorship programs or as well, just again, through, through meeting people who kind of became informal mentors um, to me. And I think that has been a huge benefit is having those mentorship or mentors to help you through this industry. It's, not uh, a straightforward path. And it is quite confusing. And every day, I'm still learning more and more about the industry and what different roles there are or how seniority systems work at airlines and just different job opportunities. Like I didn't know when I was 16, starting out flying that there was a position of a medevac or a survey pilot or any of these things or flying for the United Nations or whatever it might be. There's so many opportunities out there. Um, so through having mentors that kind of guided me, I was able to, to see those different roles or have insight in, into different job opportunities. Um, so it, it's been really beneficial. And I also joined um, the 99s Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative Program which was a 18-month formal mentorship program. And I cannot highlight how impactful that program was to me. So again, it's, it's a very formal mentorship program. So you start out as what's called a captain, then you go into the captain circle and you become a navigator the mentor yourself. So it takes you from being a, a mentee to being a mentor to somebody else through that 18-month program. And within the program, you have to, in order to graduate through it, Um, you need to get a number of leadership points. So those leadership points can be running. For example, I did a girl guides in aviation day, I helped with um, girls take flight Oshawa event, which is an awesome um, opportunity. And I kind of brought out the leadership qualities um, to, to give back to the aviation community. So Uh, It was an absolutely awesome program. The one stipulation is that you do need to be a commercial pilot uh, or hold your, at least your commercial pilot's license to be in that program because it is a professional pilot leadership initiative, but there are many other um, organizations that you do not need to be a commercial pilot or a female to be in for that matter. Um, So definitely do your research and check out all the different um, mentorship uh, programs that you can get involved in. And, had I done that at the beginning, I think maybe my my career path or my journey would have been different. But like I said, again, everybody's path is unique.
0: Now, what is your ultimate aviation career goal?
1: That is one of the toughest questions I think I've ever asked is what is my ultimate aviation career goal? It definitely does ebb and flow. Um, I think, again, kind of learning what the industry is and all the different avenues within the industry that I didn't know about from even doing my commercial license, it keeps changing. And I feel like it will continue to change throughout my whole career. Um, what started from when I was in my commercial license was I want to be an airline pilot. That is what I want to do. That's what can I do to get there? And then I got my first job survey flying and I was like, wow, wow, I love survey flying. I love being on the road. I love not knowing what city I'm going to be in. I love doing all these different activities and all these different places I go, which is, again, a main reason I think we all get into aviation is that chasing adventure and the opportunity to travel and whatnot. And so now I was like, oh, I could do this for like my whole, if it wasn't a four month on, one week off schedule, I could do that job forever flying that 172 around the world. But Unfortunately, life does have relationships and and four months away, it, it is challenging for that. Um, but then I was like, oh, what other types of survey are there out there? And then through talking with uh, some mentors and and peers in the industry, I'm like, oh, wow, I could make a career survey flying. That's pretty awesome. And then finding out about medevac flying and putting an application in and, and getting this job, I'm like wow medevac flying this is really cool but it's also really challenging and it's hard being awake like all the time and and working a weird schedule um, that's not always convenient but i i could do this for a few years and like i really do enjoy it and i'm learning so much um so so maybe i could make this a career and then i talked to other people and they've flown for the United Nations. And I'm like, wow, that seems really, really cool. Maybe I can do that. So I think what I've really taken away is that I'm open to opportunities. And I love seeing where my journey takes me by just sometimes saying yes to an opportunity. Like, yes, I will try this. And it doesn't mean that you have to love every single thing that you do. But just taking those chances and and seeing if you like it, or if you don't like it, Um, to kind of really figure out what you want your career to be. And I would say though, down the road and maybe 10 years from now or 15 years from now, who knows, like the airlines is still very much appealing to me. I'm a people person. I like customer service. And I think that is something that I would enjoy is the airline environment and the professionalism within that side of the industry. But for right now, I'm enjoying figuring out what the industry has to offer and uh, just willingness to learn um, and try new things. And without all these different experiences, I might not be the the pilot that I will be 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And I do think I would like to get through kind of through mentorship and really enjoying that engaging factor is, is to become either like a, a chief pilot or training captain down the line um, and kind of bring that, that mentorship to a more professional setting down the, down the road, wherever that may be. <laughs> Now, who is someone in aviation you admire, and why? This is another really tough question. Um, I don't think there is going to be one single answer to this. Um, my admiration for different people in the industry is so multifaceted that I meet somebody and I look up to them, and I and I admire them. And I mean y'all. They tell me a story, or give me advice, or help me out, and I'm like, then I start following their journey, and they follow my journey, and it's that kind of combined admiration. So, yeah, I definitely can't say one specific thing, but I what I can say is I am very appreciative of all of the mentors and people that I've met just in passing um, along, and I admire people's resilience to take the time to help somebody starting out in their career. Um, Through a very generous mentor of mine, I was able to get my tailwheel endorsement and get access to a world of aviation that I wouldn't have known. Um, So I admire him. I admire the people who take the time to give me a phone call and check in on me. So I think it's just A whole lot of admiration for a whole lot of different individuals. And there's definitely not one that I can point out. But I hope that everybody who knows me and um, who has taken the time to to talk to me and get to know me, they can all know that I admire them in a certain type of way.
0: Now, what advice did you have for someone looking to get into aviation? Yeah, so...
1: I think kind of a theme that I've kind of talked about throughout this podcast has been carving your own path. So no one's path in aviation is going to be the same. Uh, So whether you're doing it self-paced, you're in a college program, you're in a university program, whether you're 18 years old or you're 50 years old, no path is the right one. It's going to be the path that is right for you. And so everybody's journey is so unique. So just kind of enjoy it. Um, and also to really live in the moment and to take the time to enjoy every step. So I think sometimes, um, especially kind of maybe pre-COVID-19, everybody's goal was so fast-paced. People were moving in the industry at a, at a record pace that hadn't been seen before because there was a pilot shortage. So you might have been just trying to step stone to, to that end career goal, whatever that may be. And I think maybe with the COVID-19 pandemic and even just myself kind of realizing when I was in each stage that I really did just love what I was doing. And to take that moment to, if you're a student pilot right now to enjoy those cross country flights and that time building phase and enjoy making mistakes and learning from them, enjoy going on trips with your friends or your family. When you first get your private pilot's license And then continuing on with that license to learn to into your commercial and just enjoy that moment, enjoy that first job, really absorb what you're doing and get everything out of it and ask questions throughout every stage. And then like for myself in my medevac role, I was going into an IFR world, which I had been kind of taken away from for a year um, flying survey. So that opportunity to learn and now be a learner again and, absorb everything and ask my captain's questions, ask my chief pilot for advice and things like that is just your, the best thing and just enjoy what you're doing. So yeah, that's point. Number one Um, point number two would be to work hard and treat everyone with respect. Um, Never burn bridges and put in any task that you do with your utmost enthusiasm. So whether that is starting out and you're, working on a ramp somewhere and it's minus 40 degrees out and you're like, there's nothing I'd rather do than just be inside right now. But you know what? You're showing up, you're at work. So you might as well find the fun in what you're doing and try to enjoy it and have a good positive attitude. And I think your employer will notice that you'll just have a better time because, hey, it's minus 40 and you might be in snow pants and you can just have a little dance party or something um, on the ramp. So really just try to make the most of what you do. Um, Apply to scholarships. That was something I didn't take full advantage of in my flight training, and I wish I had. Um, So definitely look into the different scholarships. Um, Find ways to get involved, uh, whether that be through mentorship programs, groups such as the EAA, so Experimental Aircraft Association, our our Canadian Owners and Pilots Association, COPA, the 99s, Women in Aviation International, Elevate, which you are, are... quite involved with um whether that be through flying clubs facebook groups um get involved because it's going to open you up to a great way a great group of people and as well just make you feel more connected and hopefully enjoy what you're doing even more and then uh my last point would be don't be afraid to make mistakes again we're always learning in the uh, either hobby or profession of flying and learn from them and move on. And that's some advice that I'm still trying to, to hone in on is if you make a mistake, it's okay. Just as long as you learn from it and you grow from it as a pilot and as a person, um, that's going to take you really far in life. So um, learn from your mistakes and make them because my dad always said, if you're not falling, you're not learning. So just keep on falling and getting back up, but just don't fall too hard from the sky.
0: Now, what are some things you enjoy outside of aviation? Yeah.
1: So outside of aviation, obviously, um, I mean, it's still within aviation, but I really do just enjoy flying for fun still um, and flying my own aircraft. Um, So that's something that's not outside aviation at all, but outside of the professional aspect is just having fun, going on flights with friends and family. Hopefully once COVID-19 subsides again, I can do more flights with friends and and family and, and continue doing that. Um, but sports is definitely a huge aspect of, um, what I enjoy doing. So whether that be downhill skiing, playing hockey, which again, uh, unfortunately it was great up here in, in Sioux Lookout with, uh, the women's hockey league that I joined. Um, I was out playing three times a week if I could, and it was super, super fun. Um, but with COVID-19 that's been put on hold, um, hiking, canoeing, pretty much anything outdoors. I do really enjoy hanging out with my friends, um, and also continuing to learn in, in different ways. So I do just like kind of Googling random things and, and learning more about just different aspects of, of the world and whatnot. So I think it wouldn't be out of the realm for me to go back to school to, uh, to pursue um, either a master's degree or, or something like that. Because I do just have a, a lifelong love for learning.
0: Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career?
1: This one was a very tough question, Laura. You're asking a lot of very tough questions. Um, but all in all, it came down to something that was part of my aviation journey, but not a, uh, a, career, um, a career flight. Um, it was my flight that I planned uh, with my dad to go to Oshkosh in 2019. And that is a flight that I will... Remember for the rest of my life, um, growing up again, going to air shows with my dad. Um, it had always been like a special moment that we could share together. And the fact that we were taking my little Cessna 150 from Brampton, Ontario, all the way to Oshkosh uh, was amazing. So it was all of the pre flight planning, it was uh, a chance for. Myself, who is at this point a commercial pilot with my multi-multi IFR rating, but I hadn't really done a crazy long trip yet in my aircraft, and it was something that my dad and I could kind of learn together on how to cross into the United States. Never done that before. Um, finding out what these little what stops we should make given the fuel. It was just that was really special, and then. Actually, we, funny enough, though, we didn't get into Oshkosh because that year it was like sloshkosh. It was so muddy that the airport was actually closed um, for a few days to allow for the soil to dry and whatnot. But we landed in Appleton and my little 150 was parked with all these executive private jets. And it was just the funniest thing in the world to see the little 150 and all these private jets because that was the only parking that they had at the Appleton airport. And, and we ended up taking... Um, a bus into Oshkosh and we still camped, So we brought our tent and everything and we, we camped at Oshkosh and we had just a great week together. And then we got to fly home um, and we flew uh, uh, across the Chicago skyline. So the, the Northern trip, we went along uh, the North around Lake um, uh, Manitoulin Island and, and then down. And then going home, we, we flew by the Chicago um, waterfront and then did the, the Southern route back home. So we did a full circle And it was just uh, one of the greatest experiences um, that I will forever hold special to my heart. Um, Yeah, that was a really great moment.
0: That would be very hard to top. And thinking that you got to have such an incredible journey and do it with your dad, uh, equally as passionate about aviation as you, that would just add to how special that trip would have been. Yeah, it definitely did. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, so
1: they can find me on Instagram. I will put the caveat in. I'm not a influencer or anything like that, but you can follow my my journey of um, of my little flying fun that I have. Uh, it's Christina underscore Vaughn underscore Bulow, as it would be spelt in uh, the title. As well, uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn if you have any questions regarding uh, your professional pilot uh career or just, uh, questions in general, um, I'd be more than happy to, to help any, um, aspiring pilot or pilot who's already, um,
0: in their, in their journey. Christine Von bulo thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Laura. This has been a pleasure.
0: The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.